Man, well, I don't know if you've ever been at work or at school and someone like your boss or your teacher has given you a assignment to do or a task to do and you just had no idea what they were asking from you. Like you had no clue what it was you were supposed to do. This happens to me like way more often than I would care to admit. Like whenever I start like a new job or I'm doing something different, man, and a, a boss is like, hey, will you go clean this or will you go uh, do this task? And I'm like, what? And um, man, I'm trying to figure it out and I'm too embarrassed to, to ask what it is that they're wanting from me. So instead, I take a five minute task and I spend 15 minutes trying to find the thing that I'm supposed to clean. And then I'm like way late on it and it just ends up being a mess. And there's an episode of a TV show that I love that does this like so well. And it's the old sitcom Seinfeld. And I don't know if it's irrelevant to talk about Seinfeld now, but it's great. So I'm going to do it anyway. There is an episode of Seinfeld where George is being given a super important task from his boss. And so he's walking with his boss and he's giving him this assignment and the boss walks into the bathroom and George doesn't know whether or not he's supposed to follow his boss into the bathroom. Cause it's like kind of weird. Like you don't follow people into the bathroom, but then he realizes that this whole time, his boss has been explaining the assignment and George misses like all the important details and he's too afraid to ask for clarification. So instead he starts trying to figure out any details that he can. And the only detail that he's able to find out is that he's supposed to go downtown. And it culminates with this hilarious scene of George and Jerry sitting in the coffee shop trying to break down the lyrics of Petula Clark's downtown song to figure out what it is he's supposed to do. You know the one, when you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. And as silly as this might be or as, as uh, strange as this might be, it really does happen all the time in our personal lives, at work, at school, in our friendships or romantic relationships. Sometimes you just want to grab someone and shake them and say, what is it that you want from me? Man, like, wouldn't it be great if your boss or your professor or your boyfriend or girlfriend just told you exactly what they expected of you, exactly what they wanted from you? And all the guys listening are like, amen, brother. Like, come on, preach it. But this is really how we operate sometimes. I'll take it a step further. Wouldn't it be great if God just told you what he wanted from you? Wouldn't it be great if God just laid out, hey, this is exactly what I'm expecting of you. This is exactly what I'm requiring, what I want from you. And what we do is we spend so much time trying to figure this out and, and we try and figure it out for the big picture. Like we want to know for the grand scheme of life, what is it that God wants from us? But also for the day to day, like on a daily basis, what is it that God is looking for from me? And, and often we, we try and figure this out in crazy different ways. We end up looking like George and Jerry in the coffee shop, uh, breaking down lyrics to a stupid song. We uh, look at cryptic Bible passages and we twist verses out of, out of context. Or we um, run to pastors and preachers who claim to have all the answers, which by the way, I'm not claiming to have all the answers today. Or we create theological systems that are incoherent because they tell us what we want to hear. And what if God just plainly told us what he wanted from us in his word? And I really believe that that exists. I really believe that today, as we seek to answer this question, we will find the answer of what God wants from us plainly in his word. 
And if it exists, like if we can find this answer, uh, we, um, we would want to find it. Like if we don't, if we miss out on it, we will be missing out on some really great things. We'll be missing out on closeness with God. We would be missing out on life change through the work of the Holy Spirit. And we will be missing out on welcoming other people into the fold, into the family of God. And so this is hugely important for us. And if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm really glad that you clicked on this video. I don't know if someone sent you a link or if you were just scrolling through social media and you found it. However you got here, I'm glad that you're here. And maybe you've asked yourself this question. Like whether you believe in God or you don't believe in God, maybe you've asked yourself, what is it that God like would want from me as a person? Like he probably just wants good works, right? Like he probably just wants me to do good things. Or maybe he just wants me to give all my money away to charity. Or he wants me to go help the needy. Or he probably wants me to show up to church. And it's my hope today, it's my prayer today that you will one, see the truth. That you will have this question answered for you, what God wants, but More importantly than that, I hope and I pray that you will see God for who he is and that you will desire to be close to him, that you will desire to know him in a way that you never have. And so that's where we're going today. We're going to be in the book of Micah together. And if you're looking for Micah in your Bible, in your Bible app, it's after Jonah. But if you've hit Nahum, you've gone too far. That's kind of where it sits. And it's considered a minor prophet. It's shorter than the other prophetic books called the major prophets. And it takes place during what we call the split kingdom. The split kingdom was a time when Israel was split into two nations. The northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. And he's writing to Judah, the southern kingdom, at a time that if you're trying to place this in a mental timeline, it overlaps with the ministry of Isaiah. And they're writing, he is writing at a time when the business class is very affluent, very well off, and it's mainly due to government assistance. And so what had happened was uh, wealthy business owners and government officials had kind of teamed up. And they were placing farmers and merchants under the thumb of oppression. See, poor farmers and merchants were being oppressed by the wealthier, affluent members of society. And what had happened was they had replaced their religion with commercialism. They had lost their love for God and they had picked up a love for money. And God is going to use Micah and use his preaching not only to call them out, but to call them back. See, God's desire is not only to just call them out in their sin, but to call them back to himself. And they're not going to listen. Spoiler alert for you if you are not super familiar with it. They almost never listen. And so they don't listen. And they're sent into into exile by the hand of the Babylonians. But God is going to preserve a remnant from Judah that he will use to restore them. And so I hope I didn't put you to sleep with some Old Testament history there. But what I want you to see is that Micah's message is not all doom and gloom. Like it is not all judgment and exile and repent, repent, repent. It's actually a message of hope. See, it's a message of hope because God is not just calling his people to repent. He's calling them back to himself, back to their first love. And in doing so, we get a glimpse into the answer to our question. See, as we ask, what is it that God wants from us? We're going to see our answer in the way that God calls his people back to himself. And so before we get started in this, there's this one other thing you got to know, and it's kind of a genre thing that's going on in these verses. See, this passage reads kind of like a courtroom drama. 
See, what's going to unfold is God is speaking and he's kind of charging his people, the Israelites and the Judeans, he's charging them with the crime of unfaithfulness. And he's going to tell them to take the stand and to testify. And so it's going to play out in this um, kind of courtroom kind of situation. And actually the people are going to have the audacity to accuse God of things and questions God authority. And so that's where we're going today. We're going to be in Micah chapter six. Let's start in verse one. Now listen to what the Lord is saying. Rise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your complaint. Listen to the Lord's lawsuit, you mountains and enduring foundations of the earth. Because the Lord has a case against his people and he will argue it against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? Or have I wearied you? Testify against me. So he's calling Judah, plead your case against me. And maybe you're wondering, what's with the mountains and the foundations of the earth and the hills thing? He's basically saying, hey, come before all of creation in the presence of everything that I've created and testify against me. Raise your claim against me. And I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty terrifying to me. Like I can't even ask for extra sauce at the Taco Bell drive-thru. You want me to testify against God before all creation? Like I'm not going to do that. And a lot of you are probably thinking the same thing. Like, I I would never do that. But the truth is, what happens so often in our hearts is we get caught up in maybe sin, maybe pain that's gone unresolved, our, our opinions. And we actually start to think that this is a good idea. It doesn't happen overnight. Like, you don't just wake up and think like, oh, I'm gonna accuse God today of some crimes. No, but like, What happens is over time, when you let sin linger, when you let hurt go unresolved and unaddressed, when you have questions and doubts that you haven't surrendered and that lingers in your life, you begin to question and doubt and raise accusations against God. You begin to think that you're right and God is wrong and God needs to answer for some things. See, this is what happened in the life of Job. If you're familiar with Job, maybe you know the story, but if you don't, I'll give you a really quick uh, recap. Job was a righteous man. He was a righteous man who loved God and God let him go through some really tough things, some really difficult things to teach him a lesson about faithfulness. And Job tries really hard If you read the book, it's a long book. Job tries really hard to not accuse God, to not question God. Actually, he has some really horrible friends and a really horrible wife who are just spitting lies at him. And he's trying really hard to not accuse God, not question God's authority. And what happens is after a while, he breaks down. And he questions God and he raises all these accusations against God. And he thinks that he can put God on the stand and put God on trial. And the reason I bring this up is because this is a human problem. Like this is something that all humans do. Adam and Eve, when they decided to rebel and eat the fruit that God had commanded them not to do, that's what they were doing. They were essentially questioning God's authority. Job, which many theologians think takes place during the time of Genesis, is questioning God's authority. If you look at the Exodus And the nation of Israel wandering throughout the desert, man, they are constantly questioning God's authority. Look here in Micah and the people are doing it again. Fast forward to after Jesus' death and some of the disciples are even going to question God. What are you doing? This is a human problem. It has plagued humanity all throughout time. 
And I don't know what it is for you that would lead you there. I don't know if it's sin that's gone unaddressed or pain that has turned into anger, that's turned into rebellion. I don't know if it's questions or doubts that you just haven't been able to wrestle through and surrender to God. But what I do know is that this does not have to be your story. You do not have to walk down that road that Job did or that the Israelites and the people of Judah did. You can surrender it over to God now so you don't end up questioning and accusing God later. If you surrender that stuff now, it will pay off in the long run because if there's one thing I know is that when people accuse God, God always responds. Watch this in in verse four. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from that place of slavery. I sent Moses and Aaron and Miriam ahead of you. My people remember what King Balak of Moab proposed and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal, so that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. And God reminds them of the righteous things that he's done for them. God reminds them, the biggest one being the Exodus, that he rescued them out of a place of slavery from the most powerful nation that the world had ever seen up to that point. And what he's doing here is he's reminding his critics who is God and who isn't, who is the creator and who is the created. And again, this is going to parallel in Job. And I love the passage in Job. It's actually super long. It's like three or four chapters where God responds to Job's accusations, but it's really poetic and it's really powerful. So I want to read only a couple verses from it. It says this in Job 38, God responds to Job's accusations. Who is this that obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man when I question you. You will inform me. Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? What supports its foundations? Or who laid its cornerstones while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And your first reaction might be like, all right, like, geez, okay, I get it. Like a little rough. But really, this is the only proper response that God has. The only proper response to our grumbling, to our, um, our ego, is to, is to remind us of who God is, who is God, and who isn't God. And in this passage, he's basically asking, he's like, wait, who is God again? Who is the creator? Who is the all-powerful one? Is it you? No, it's not you. It's me. And I know this is a tough pill for us to swallow, but it, it really is the only proper response to our challenging and our questioning of authority is to remind us that he is God and he is in control and he can be trusted with that. And before you think that God is being like a bully or he's being kind of mean, I want you to see how Job responds. In Job 42, he says this, I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things I did not understand. Things too wondrous for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. I had heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I reject my words and am sorry for them. I am dust and ashes. Job responds with humility. He sees that God is God 
and he deserves that respect and he can handle that authority. And the truth is, no matter if you want to admit it or not, there is something that exists in all of us that wants to be our own God, that we want to dethrone God and enthrone ourselves and be the God of our own life. This is a human problem. This is human nature. This is what was behind Adam and Eve's temptation in the garden that when the serpent said to them, hey, eat of this fruit. And they said, well, wait, God said, we'll die if we eat that fruit. The serpent says, no, you won't die. See, God said, God's afraid that you'll become like him. He doesn't want you to be like him. And in their minds, they're thinking, I want to be like God. I want to have that. I want to have, I want to be the God of my own life. This has been plaguing humanity since the very beginning, but it does not have to be your story. You can avoid this by responding with humility. That's exactly what Job does. He responds with humility. He recognizes that God is God, that he is sovereign, that he can be trusted, that he can handle the responsibility and the questions and, and, the, and the doubts and all the cosmic things that are going on. God can handle it. And he responds with humility. And I know this may not feel like it's in pursuit of our question, right? What does God want? Like, how does this apply to the question that we've been asking? And the truth is, we can't answer that question. We can't find out what God wants from us unless we acknowledge that he is God and he deserves the respect and the authority and our worship. See, if we don't do that, if we enthrone ourselves, we will come to the same conclusion that countless cultures have come to before us. And it is that um, the do whatever you want, do whatever makes you feel good kind of mentality. And let me tell you, I hope you hear me when I say this, that there is no more dangerous mentality. There is no more dangerous framework for life than the framework of do whatever you want, do whatever makes you feel good. It leads to overindulgence. It's gluttony of the soul. It is self-sabotaging. It is selfishness that leads to death. But when you humbly acknowledge that God is God, that he alone deserves the authority and our attention and our worship and ultimately our lives, then we will be able to find the answer that we've been looking for. And so let's turn our attention back to Micah in verse 6. What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the offering of my body for my own sin? And God is almost quoting his people and they're caught up in this sacrificial system. Like they're caught up in the thinking that, oh, I just need to bring God more offerings. Like, yeah, I've sinned, I've messed up. And all he really wants is for me to bring more sacrifices, bring more offerings. And I, I bet you that there's no one here listening right now that is caught up in that, right? Like, I don't think that many of you are, perform are performing burnt offerings on a daily basis, thinking that that's going to get you God's love and God's approval. But what I do think is that many of us are caught up in the same idea, the same mentality. This idea that you need to earn God's love, that you need to earn God's forgiveness, and you do it by doing good deeds or giving money or giving your time or showing up to church or reading your Bible. And I need you to hear me when I say that God is not looking at your performance. He's not weighing your actions on a scale, deciding whether or not he's going to love you or forgive you. This is not what he desires of us. 
He does not desire some sort of system that uh, we try to earn our love or earn our forgiveness from him. In fact, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was temporary. It was designed to make his people long for something greater, for something permanent. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament was meant to point our eyes toward Jesus. That Jesus is the final sacrifice for the sins of the world. That God came down in the form of man to dwell with us and to live a perfect life and to die as the final sacrifice for sin. And that because of his death, we are not judged on our own actions. We are not judged on our own righteousness, but we are judged by his righteousness and by his actions. So when you fall short, when you get it wrong, you don't need to worry about God being angry or judging you because the wrath of God has been satisfied by Christ's death on the cross. And so before we even read our answer of what God wants from us, we can have peace knowing that we don't have to be afraid when we get it wrong because Christ's death covers us. His righteousness covers us. So it's time now that we read the answer that we've been looking for, and it comes in verse 8, so let's read that together. Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to act justly, love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. And so we get three things. Act justly, love faithfulness, and walk humbly with God. And so I want to break these down for you. Act justly. And you might be thinking, wait, wait, I thought you just got done saying it's not about performance, it's not about actions, it's not about doing good works. And see, it's not. It is not about your performance. And it actually is so well explained in James 2. And if you have a a second later, you should open that up and read that. And in that, James is going to talk about how true faith produces good works in us. See, we don't have a faith that is required of good works. Like We don't have a faith that is dependent on good works. But we have a faith that produces good works in us. See, you don't get saved by doing good works. But if you are saved, you will desire to do good. You will desire to stand up against injustice and to stand up for what is good around you. The second thing is to love faithfulness. And I know that sounds a little weird. Like, how does one love faithfulness? Um, And this is really all about devotion to God. That we, we are to be committed to him. And that we are to show faithfulness to him. And this is not just a one-way street, by the way. God has shown time and time again from the very beginning that he is a faithful God. And all throughout the Old Testament, he remains faithful to Israel. Even when they are at their worst, when they are running for the other direction from him, he is faithful to them. And in the New Testament, we are told that nothing can pluck us from his hand. That that when we are welcomed into the family of God, we are secure there. That he will be faithful to us until the end. In the Old Testament, there's something really cool that happens. When uh, it talks about the love that God has for his people, it uses the Hebrew word chesed. And that is a unique word. It's a word that is only ever used for God's love toward human beings. It's exclusive. And it literally means loyal love, loving kindness. It is a love that is faithful no matter what. And out of response to God's faithfulness to us, we respond with with faithfulness to God. That's what he wants from us. And finally, to walk humbly with him. And notice that humility comes back around, right? Like we were talking about the way that Job responds humbly to God. Well, now we are to walk humbly with him. 
And we do that by recognizing that he is God, that he deserves the authority, that he deserves our submission. And we submit to him. We are obedient to him because of that. We remain humble before him. And then we walk with him. And see, we've heard walking with God, right? Like, oh, well, how's your walk? Like, what's your walk like? And this is more than just a cute image. This is not just a saying. And yeah, it's used all over the Bible and it is designed. This saying is meant to call back to mind a certain image. And it is the image of Adam walking through the garden with God. It is designed to call back how Adam would walk through the garden with God in the cool of the day that we learn in Genesis. See, it's, it's designed to remind us about closeness. See, it's this thing that theologians will call divine presence. This idea that God has always been about closeness with his people. It's most shown in the garden when he is physically with his uh, creation, with Adam and Eve. And then it's shown again when Jesus comes to earth to dwell among his people, Emmanuel, God with us. And now again, through the Holy Spirit who is present with anyone who puts their trust in Jesus. God has always been about closeness with his people. And so what does he want from us? He wants closeness in return. He is drawn near to us and he wants us to draw near to him, to seek after him by knowing him and being known by him. God wants our closeness. This is what God wants from us. To kind of sum this up for you in a bottom line, In a short sentence, God wants our actions, our faithfulness, and our closeness. In our relationship with him, in our day-to-day lives, he wants our actions, our faithfulness, and our closeness. And I I don't want you to miss that this is so clearly reflected in the life of Jesus. That Jesus was constantly standing up for what is right. He was uh, calling out injustice. He was acting justly in his life. He was faithful to his followers and he was faithful to God, even to the point of death on a cross. And he showed us what it was like to walk humbly with God. Don't miss this. The Bible says that, um, God, uh, that Jesus is God, that he's a member of the Trinity, yet he did not count equality to be, uh, with God to be something that could be grasped. Meaning that that even though he was uh, equal with God, he decided to submit himself to the will of the Father to show his followers what it's like to humbly walk with God. This is what Jesus did throughout his life. And we're not always going to get this right. You're not always going to be perfect. But the amazing thing about it is that it's not about perfection. Perfection is not what's required of you. Jesus' death and resurrection covers your shortcomings. You don't have to worry about perfection. You are free to walk this out without fearing what will happen if you mess it up. And so really quickly as we are closing, I want to talk about how we can do this a little bit practically. So I want to walk through these three things one more time and just talk about practical things that we should be doing. And first let me say that this will be so much easier for you if you know your Bible. Like this, when I say things like act justly, like uh, the, the guys and girls who know their Bible... Man, they they are hearing verses coming flooding to mind. They're thinking of examples because man, when you know your Bible, this is just going to come easier for you. And so act justly. Things like James 1, visit orphans and widows. Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens. Matthew 28, make disciples of all nations. And then on top of this, you should be looking at the injustices around you and how you can affect them for the kingdom. If you didn't listen to it, you should go back a few months now and listen to Doug's message, Fight Injustice. 
It was a great message, and he talks all about this, how we stand up against injustice, we fight injustice, and we do it not just to help people, not just to do good for the sake of doing good, but to point people toward the kingdom of God. And so in the way you speak, the way you act, you stand up for what's right, you act justly, and you do it in your sphere of influence. See, this is not about going on a social media rant. This is not about thinking that you have the solution to all of America's problems if they just gave you a microphone and a news outlet. This is about realizing your sphere of influence. And for 95% of the people, probably 99% of the people watching this right now, your sphere of influence is your home, your school, your workplace, and your neighborhood. That is where you are poised to make change, to act justly and point people towards the kingdom of God. Second, how do we love faithfulness? How do we do that? Well, we do it in our relationship with God and we do it in our relationship with others. So with God, we remain faithful and obedient to him even when it hurts, even when you don't want to, when you're confused, when you're angry, when you're in pain, you remain faithful and obedient to him because that's what it means to love faithfulness. We live the way he wants us to, even when it's not the way the rest of the world is living or it's not the way that you really desire to live, you submit to him because you love faithfulness. And right now in 2020, man, isn't that it? Like we're looking around at all the confusion and all the questions and all the pain. And how do we love faithfulness? We do it by staying faithful to him. And then with others, how do we model this in in our relationship with others, man? Well, you love people with a loyal love. You love the people around you with a loyal love, even when they don't deserve it. That's what loving faithfulness is for the people around you. You love them, you care for them, you encourage them when they don't deserve it. That is what God has done for you, and it's what you are called to do for others. And then finally, we walk humbly with Him. And we do this by knowing Him and being known by Him. So we know him by spending time with him, by by spending time in the word, in worship, in prayer, by memorizing scripture, by meditating on that scripture. This is not just about having a 20-minute quiet time in the morning. And if you're doing that, that's great. And if that's something you're working towards, keep that up. But really, this is about staying connected to God all throughout your day. That means maybe you're constantly in prayer or you're reflecting on scripture that you've memorized throughout your day. And then when you get a break, you're checking in with prayer. And I'm not talking about like some super eloquent, super long-winded prayer. I'm just saying, pray what you got. That's what God wants from you. Just pray your honest prayers. What are you feeling? What are you thinking? What's going on around you? Pray what you got. God wants your honesty because he just wants you to be close to him. And then he wants you to be known by him. And I know that sounds a little obscure because it's like, didn't he create me? Doesn't like he know me? And yeah, but one of the biggest steps that we can take in closeness with God is opening up those areas of our lives that we don't want to give over to him. The fears, the anxieties, the questions, the sins that you've been struggling with, those things that you're keeping closed off from him. Allow yourself to open up. Allow yourself to be exposed and be known by God. And that is such a huge step in closeness with him. God wants our closeness. If you're still tuning in and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm so glad that you've made it this far with us. Because you've heard the amazing truth of who God is, that he's not just some angry God who's judging you based on your actions. He's not just waiting for you to fail. He's a loving God who wants to be close to you. 
He wants to know you and be known by you. He desired it so much that he would come to earth and die on a cross to be the sacrifice for your sins. And when he rose from the grave, he defeated sin and death once and for all so that you could have eternal life with him. And that life is available to you if you put your trust in Jesus and follow him with your life. And so if you want to start a relationship with Jesus, if you want to put your trust in him today, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in just a second. But let's remember the answer to our question, what is it that God wants from us? He wants our actions, he wants our faithfulness, and he wants our closeness. Let's pray together. God, thank you that life isn't uh, based on works. We're not living out some works-based system, God, that you desire our closeness, you desire a relationship with us. That we are saved, not by our own actions, not by our own righteousness, but by the righteousness and the actions of Christ. Thank you, God. Help us, teach us, God, to act justly in our lives, to love faithfulness in our relationships, and to walk humbly with you, God. And if you're listening and you want to place your trust in Jesus today and start a relationship with him, you can pray this with me. Whether out loud or to yourself, Jesus, I believe that you are God and that you came to earth to die for my sins. I believe that your death was a sacrifice that paid for my sins. I believe that in your resurrection, you defeated sin and death and that you call me a son or a daughter of God. Would you come into my life today? Would you teach me to follow you? And if you prayed that, that isn't some magic prayer. It's not the words that save you, but it's the position of your heart before God. And so what I would love is if you would uh, just reach out to us. I know we can't be together in person, but reach out to us via email, via the app, and just let us know that you prayed that today. And we would love to come alongside you for the next steps and walk with you. God, thank you for your incredible word that we can look to to find you, that we can seek you out and find the answer of what it is you want from us, that we could have closeness with you, God. We love you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.